This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Impact of Influence, the Murdoch family murders. This is the unfolding story of a powerful South Carolina family, the mysterious deaths they are linked to, and our quest to bring you the truth. Hello, friend. So grateful that you decided to spend some time with us, both of us actually in Dwayne's studio, Matt Harris and Seton Tucker. And you can find us, Murdoch Podcast on Facebook, MurdochPodcast.com, Matt Harris Podcast at gmail.com. I know we keep apologizing for not getting back to you quicker, but we're going to say it again. We're sorry. Uh, we're up against it. We're going to get to it, and we're going to get to some emails and Facebook messages during the course of this episode. We are also going to have our... Legal analyst John Snyder join us in a little bit, but uh, Seton, good to see you. Good to see you. I know it's been weird, right? I know. Yeah, we're on the road. We haven't seen each other, even been in the studio for a, a while because of uh, this amazing trial, which is now in, geez, did we just wrap week five? I think so. Yeah. Uh, I heard uh, Joe McCullough, the uh, attorney down in that area, say that the longest murder trial in history in South Carolina was the Pee Wee Gaskins murder trial. And Dick Harputlian was the prosecutor on that exactly. case. And this one is getting close to that, which is, you know, you think about like the OJ trial, for instance, I believe it was eight months. This could be the longest one in South Carolina history if we get to six or seven weeks. Yeah. It's so weird because I've been talking to a lot of the, sorry. You got breaking news. That's okay. We'll just keep going. (laughs) I've been talking (laughs) to a lot of the, the media in the course of this, and I don't think... There has been a case other than Susan Smith that has hit South Carolina this hard. You got to be right. You can, uh, if you want to find out about the Susan Smith case, Google it. But basic ideas: she drowned her kids, drove her car into the river, and then blamed it on other people. We found out it was her. Mm-hmm. So, uh, what was that like the '90s or something? I think it was. Yeah, early '90s. Early '90s. Yeah. Okay. So anyway. Um, Couple of notes. Let's before we get into, and we're gonna have lots of clips today of Alec on the stand. Let's go inside the courtroom since you were there. And one thing you told me about was okay. As this has been going on at the very beginning, the, the courtrooms were not packed. They weren't even turning away people at the beginning. But recently, of course, <laughs> with Alec especially on stand, you say it has been jammed. No, I've spoke to several people and. Actually, one person got in line at 5.45 in the morning and didn't make it in. Really? Yeah. It doesn't open until 9.30. Yes. I think if you want to try to attend this trial, I would recommend getting in line around 5 a.m. Wow. That is crazy. It's only going to be more and more crowded, I would assume, as 
we, well, see, Alec would have been the star attraction. Um, and so we've got experts coming up and that sort of thing. And we'll get on to what to expect coming up. But another thing I want to talk about in the, in the courtroom is the temperature. Because Dwayne and I laugh, and most people who are watching it probably see, right behind whoever's on the stand is the thermostat. We always know what the temperature is. And I think, the, wasn't it like 66, Dwayne? Give me a thumbs up or something. Yeah, 66 the other day. It is so cold there. I have kind of a wrap that I bring, which I've, so it doesn't match most of what I'm wearing, but I do kind of use it as a blanket. So it is very chilly. So if you do attend, dress warmly. But one of the jurors got extra warm, put a blanket over her head. She did. I mean, she brings a blanket every day. Again, I would recommend that, but <laughs> she did put it over her head. And I did see her actually was pointed out to me by Pretty Little Lies and Alibis, Gigi. She saw her put some tissues in her ear, and I looked over. Sure enough, she did put tissues in her ears during the cross of Alec Murdoch. And on the Long Crime Network, one of the episodes I was watching with the talking heads, they were like, one guy was like, how are they not kicking her off? And I think we only have two alternates left. Yeah, and I don't know. Maybe the judge didn't notice it. Maybe the defense or prosecution, I would like to talk to John and see mm -hmm. whether that bodes well for the prosecution or defense. I don't really know. Is she, we don't know if she's an alternate or because they're all just sitting normal, right? You don't know who the alternates are, do you? No, she is not an alternate. Oh, definitely not an alternate. No. Okay. Wow, that's weirder yet. I thought maybe they were, if she was an alternate, they're just saying, all right, just keep her around in case we need her, but she's not an alternate. No, and but the other thing is, I think on court TV, they talked about a juror crying on the first day of Alec Murdoch's testimony. I personally did not witness that. And where I'm sitting, I don't have a full view of all the jurors, but I never noticed that. And I did talk to multiple other people who were in attendance that day, and none of us saw that. And I'm thinking what possibly happened is, I, I no way to know, but he talked about them handing Kleenexes to them, but that doesn't mean you're crying. So maybe he took that as they're crying and maybe they just needed to blow their nose. Well, it is allergy season. <laughs> it is allergy season in the South. Yes. South Carolina, everything's been, it's been warm. Uh, we've had record temperatures. Uh, it, it has been beautiful weather. Lunch breaks, actually. If you want to check out our Facebook page, I did get a picture of Judge Newman, who likes to walk around the block during his lunch break. And I got a picture, and it kind of has gone viral. A lot of people have shared it and... If you check out our Facebook page, you can see that picture. Murdoch Podcast uh, Facebook page. All right. Um, John Snyder, as I said, will join us soon. Let's pull up a, a clip. And one of the clips we're going to start with here, and these aren't in any particular order, but there's been so much talk about Alex, and I say alleged drug addiction because a lot of people don't believe it, but we know that he certainly had a lot of drugs in his system when he did the roadside shooting and went to the rehab facility because they tested for it. Uh, but he's been saying he's had it for 20 years. So, and he's also went through millions of dollars. And people have been saying, including us, that this guy would be dead if all that money was spent on, not that we've ever had a drug addiction, but it seems like a lot of money, right? I mean, he's saying he's taking 100 pills a day. Yeah. Let's hear a little clip about Alec Murdoch talking about his pill usage. More than 2,000 milligrams a day. And how many pills is that? It, it depends on the strength. Well, let's say it's the 30s the that you just mentioned. If I took 30, if, if, if I had 30 milligram pills, you've, 
you figure 100 pills would be 3,000 milligrams. A hundred. So you're taking 60 a day or something like that? I mean, there I were days where I took more than that. There were days I took less than that. And how would you take them during the course of the day? I mean, how many are you taking at one time? How frequent in this time period, let's say January to June? You know, there's a point in time, and I'm not sure when it was. I think it was well before that where, and you have to understand this. This is something that I didn't, I mean, I can still remember the first time I ever took an oxy. Mr. Murdoch, can I ask you to answer my question, and I'll let you explain all you want. And my question was, I'm, how many were you taking a day during this time from January to June? Answer that first, please, and if you want to explain, I'm happy to let you do so. I'm not positive, and here's why. So that is an insane amount of pills, it seems to me, and most people I talk to, but he laid it out right there about how much he was taking. Uh... We are joined now. We're going to grab him when we can. He is our legal analyst, and he's been on both sides of murder trials as a prosecutor and as a defense attorney. He's John Snyder. Hi, John. Hey, how you doing? So, John, I want to, I'm want i going to play a clip for you now, and then we'll have you react uh, when we get through this. It's, sure. from, it's about Jim Griffin, and it's about privilege. Roll the clip. That your own lawyer was repeating your story that you were at home napping as late as November of 22, on national television. I don't. I don't know. I, you don't know that. No. Nah, in jail, we don't. We don't get newspapers, and the, the TV we have is limited. So. So your own lawyers, at least as late as November 22, didn't know this story that you've told to this jury after five weeks of your family and friends coming in and saying, "Yeah, that's him on that video." I'm I don't know. Your Honor, violates attorney-client privilege communication. Totally improper. Yes. Yes, sir. Response. He uh, has brought up his communications with counsel, and now I, that is fair game, Your Honor. His communications through counsel with, or alleged communications with the prosecution. He didn't. There's, there's no attorney-client privilege to national television interviews. The objection is overruled. Are you waiting for me to answer, Mr. Waters, or did I answer? I, I, I think the point's made. <laughs> All right. So anyway, that was, of course, about uh, the, the kennel video that came up and showed that Alec was there. Uh, he really – well, anyway, John, your response to that? Yeah, so, you know, when you represent someone and you go out and share details, you, you have to be mindful of – the only details you have at the time are what one person told you. And so you want to be careful as an attorney to, to not overstate your position. And I think what the judge here is saying is, hey, you can't sit down with Good Morning America and anybody else that will put a camera in front of you telling a story. And then when asked about it at trial, say, oh, that's that's attorney client privilege. I, I I think I think both Waters and the judge were right about that. Like that's uh, too too little, too late on on trying to claim privilege. Hey, let me ask you this: Do you think that Jim Griffin has major regrets about giving this interview? I think my position. I, I mean, my position through this whole thing is I have been astounded by how much counsel involved in the case representing the parties 
have spoken to the media and that that just from a practitioner standpoint just makes you nervous because it is real easy to get ahead of your skis and the next thing you know not only have you lost your case but you lose your law license because you can say too much and so it also creates um back-end challenges to your conviction because Murdoch can now say, well, my lawyer got on TV and said X, and if he if he, he never should have done that, and therefore my trial was prejudiced or, or whatever. It's just, it's way better to be completely uninvolved and talk to the media than to be a party to the case or representing a party to the case and talking to the media. Uh, let me play a clip about uh well waters is talking to alec murdoch and he says were you manufacturing an alibi and then i have a question about it for you john you were asked about requesting the phone and automobile data and that was because as a prosecutor and a lawyer you had been manufacturing an alibi to cover your tracks. No, sir, that's absolutely wrong. You admit you were wrong about a lot of things in what you told law enforcement about June 7th, correct? I was I was wrong about things. Some things. You're asked whether or not you voluntarily confessed to Agent Kelly, but you only did so after being confronted with undeniable information. Correct? No, sir, that's, that's not correct at all. What I was told is that, um, and I believe this came from Randy, what I was told is that SLED had come up with some information um, that seemed like it was consistent with my story and they needed me to verify some things is what they told me. And, you know, I, I knew that resources had already been wasted. Uh, I didn't want them wasting any more resources, and I told them the truth, but th there wasn't any, nobody had presented me with any evidence. And you just testified that you told Jim Griffin first, correct? I believe that I told Jim Griffin first. But at that time, you didn't say anything about those kennels, did you? To Jim Griffin at that correct. time? No, sir, I didn't. You testified on direct yesterday, and you were asked about leaving the kennels with your new story in light of the evidence that's been presented in this trial. Your words were, I got out of there, correct? I, I believe that's what I said, yes, sir. And you also said during your testimony on cross-examination, that you hurt the ones you love the most, didn't you? 
I did say that. Thank you. Nothing further. In, in saying that, Mr. Waters, I just want to explain that answer. I mean, he just asked me a question about what I, what I said, and then I was going to explain why I said it. All right. As I told you earlier, you're implying to this jury and to me that that was me talking about hurting Maggie and Paul, and that's not what that was. What that was is me saying, I know I hurt my brother, my partners, my clients, many of whom I told you I loved, all of whom I cared for. And that's what that was when I'm talking about how my misdeeds, how I hurt the people worst were the ones I loved the most. I just asked you what you said, correct, Mr. Murdoch? You did ask me what I said, but in asking me that, you're, you're putting an implication on there that I am explaining. I just asked you what you said. Okay. Yes, sir. Thank you. Nothing further. Nothing further. All right. So a couple of questions in that line of questioning. I'm going to start with near, near the beginning. He does one of those things that he often does with Alec is he lists off a bunch of things in his question, right? So there's like... Uh, you did this, 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 and this. Is that correct? Well, maybe some were and some weren't. Is it, when does it like on TV? You'll say every once in a while, like, uh, is there a question in there somewhere, Your Honor? Or is yeah, that, argument. So or yeah, you you can ask a compound question, so it's like you can't give an answer to the whole question because there's multiple questions being asked. But you also do re re. Uh, I I always called it circling, where you'd be like. You'd ask the you would ask a series of questions that you'd probably already asked before to reinforce to the jury the point you're making, which is, isn't it true you said you took out a mug, you poured yourself coffee, you put creamer in that <laughs> coffee, you put sugar in that coffee, and then you drank that coffee? Isn't that true? So, <laughs> you know, and if you so didn't you, put sugar in it, then the whole question you're like confused is how to answer. Right, but 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 I'm repeating probably. Yeah. Maybe I asked each of those questions about gotcha. making coffee separately, and then and then you just because what I'm doing is I'm just pounding I'm pounding away at the jury's ears right. to let them hear, you know, what an awful human being the person you're cross examining is. Now, in that last question, he asked the question, and then Alec wants to expand on it, and I've heard sometimes. People, you know, say, hey, you know, the, to the judge, hey, I just, I, I don't need this whole answer. Do you know what I mean? Like, he was that's allowed to a, do yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, that's a discretionary thing with the judge. And I think some of that is maybe the judge having an opinion about how Creighton's ask, asking these questions. Mm -hmm. Some of it is, you know, within, within a compound, yeah, I think you've got to let the witness, you want to be super clean and tight on your questions. So that there is no other answer than yes or no, or I don't remember. Well, definitely. I mean, Creighton seems to be letting him talk. And I I don't know. Is that his strategy? I, yes, because I think he's going to say every time you ask this guy a question, you get a different answer. And so don't, don't, don't listen to him at all. Listen to what the evidence is we presented. Uh, I think, and you've been watching this too, all of us here, so... Alec is acting on the stand 
to me like an attorney is on the stand. And what I mean by that is, and I find I'm not an attorney, but I'm I'm a person who is contrarian and will argue things sometimes. <laughs> um, Alex seems to be listening very careful to every word, and he's parsing every word of Creighton Waters, thinking he's about to be tricked because Alec has probably held depositions and things where he has worded things in such a way to trick might be the wrong word, but do you know what, you know what I mean? Right, John, you're, you're asking, you're asking questions for effect and you know that you might obfuscate or be unclear in your question, just, just to kind of roll the dice and see what the answer is going to be. And he is, he is responding consistent with his training and his experience and trial work. So you agree with me that you, he looked like a, like an, like an attorney, measuring each and every syllable from the person who's asking the questions. Absolutely. And you kind of want your client, you know, it'd be great if all your clients did that. So they're not like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a big shot. You want to, you want to, you want somebody that's, that's measured and tight and clean with what they're, with their, their responses to questions. All right. Let John Snyder go. He's on kid duty today. His wife had appendicitis. Uh, We will move to a clip uh, about the boat wreck and how that came up, the whole Mallory Beach fatality. Let's listen to a clip. Yesterday in great detail about the boat case, which you brought up on the 911 call and to Daniel Green, and then, of course, in this first interview, correct? I did, I did mention right. the boat wreck. All right, and you described that do you remember what you said in this interview about the boat wreck? Not specifically. About specifically the other people involved in the boat wreck? You don't remember specifically? Do you remember specifically? I guess you said no. I remember talking about the boat wreck. And don't I know, know that I talked about the boat wreck. All right. Well, I'm going to play now from 1714. Any direct threats between any of the people on the boat okay. specifically, but I, I do think there's been a small amount of yip yap between a couple of them, but not recently. Okay. What was the term you used for that? A small amount of yip-yap? Yeah, and just to be clear, Mr. Waters, there was never, ever a point in time where I thought that the people that were involved in the boat wreck Mm -hmm. did this to Paul and Maggie. I've never thought that. All right. I never thought that, but it's literally one of the first things that you said out of the 911 call. No, that's not what I said. I never, ever, ever under any point in time believed that those kids that were riding in that boat or their parents or their their families, I didn't believe that any of the families, the people that were involved in the boat wreck had anything to do with hurting Maggie and Paul. But I can tell you that at that time, and as I sit here today, that I believe that boat wreck is the reason why Paul, Paul and Maggie were killed. And I'm certain, I believe that. It was random vigilantes, the 5-2 vigilantes, huh? No, what I believe, Mr. Waters, is I believe that when Paul was charged criminally, there were so many leaks, half-truths, half-reports, half-statements, partial information, misrepresentations of Paul that ended up in the media all the time. 
And when I tell you the social media response that came from that was vile, the things that were said about what they would do to Papa, they were so over the top that nobody would believe anybody would get on social media and do that. But I believe then and I believe today that the wrong person, the wrong person saw and read that. Because okay. I can tell you for a fact that the person or people who did what I saw on June the 7th, they hated Paul Murdoch and they had anger in their heart. And that is the only, only reason that somebody could be mad at Paul Paul like that and hate him like that. Gotcha. All right, so we've got now. We've but got that's why the, the I did then believe it was the boat wreck, mm -hmm. and I believe now that the boat wreck All right, so we've had got, something to do with it. All right, so we've got random vigilantes because of the boat wreck. Now, I don't know that they're random vigilantes. Well, you just said it wasn't the family or the kid, or they're no. the kids or the family of the other kids in the boat, right? But, but so where? you're saying it's somebody off of social media. And you don't have any evidence of that, do you? Not you just me. believe that. You're just telling that jury that as you try to explain the lie that you told for the first time yesterday. Isn't that right? No, sir, that's not right. It's not right. Huh. All right, well, let me ask you a question then. So what you're telling this jury is that it's a random vigilante. That's your the 12-year-old, uh, the 12-year-old, 5'2 people that just happened to know that Paul and Maggie were both at Moselle on June 7th, that knew that they would be at the kennels alone on June the 7th, that knew that you would not be there, but only between the times of 8.49 and 9.02, that they show up without a weapon, assuming that they're going to find weapons and ammunition there, that they commit this crime during that short time window, and then they travel the same exact route that you do around the same time to Almeida. That's what you're trying to, to tell this jury? You got a lot of factors in there, Mr. Waters, all of which I do not agree with, but some of which I do. Wow. There's so much in there. So much in there. And I don't know which way the jury is going to see it. Because there is, when you talk to people, a definite split on whether they found Creighton Waters too over the top annoying or whether they thought he was getting Alec to admit big giant gaps in his story. I'm telling you, I have spent the crux of the weekend responding to messages people have sent me and they're all over the place on both sides. Right. Because one of the things that bothered me about Creighton Waters, not in that particular one, but was he kept getting hung up on this, when did you decide to lie? Remember that whole segment he went through? Well, when did it click? When did you start to lie? But it just went over and over and over again. I, I think that's what he needed to do, though. I mean, yeah. he wanted to hammer it in the heads of the jury that here is someone who has lied to his family, his friends, mm -hmm. and then he comes up with this new story. But does President, did he, did he go so far as to lose the jury? That's the question. Watching the jury, they seemed annoyed. And I don't know what that means for either side. Good point. Could be annoyed by Alec not answering. Could be annoyed by Creighton. Keep asking. Yeah. You don't know. I, I think, though, that Waters was great and kept saying the five foot two vigilantes and 
I forget what else other terms he used, but he sprinkled that five foot two people in throughout this. And they called him what a middle schooler. I actually, I personally kind of found that a little bit over the top. Yes, maybe once would have been or twice, but yeah. But then they went to middle schooler. Yeah, and uh, when and they're all referring to, in case you haven't watched every minute of the trial, one of uh, the defense attorney's experts claims that the shooter of Maggie had to be between five two and five four. Another thing, though, is they're bringing up this golf cart. We've now heard about the golf cart mentioned multiple times, and I think they're probably gonna, that'll be mentioned in closing arguments. I think. Um, but are they going to pick their lane? You're saying it's a middle schooler. You're saying the person who shot Maggie and Paul was on a golf cart. I kind of again, I think that the defense or prosecution needs to pick a lane. Like they could have said, in other words, instead of saying a, a middle schooler, you said so. You're saying that someone drove by in a golf cart and <laughs> shot somebody. Uh, the golf cart did come up again. They, and I, we don't know why, but there was, they showed Alec pictures of the golf cart. I think on June 8th was the picture it was taken, right? It, they asked him about it. He said, do you know when this picture was taken? Right. Do you know? And he said this was not ordinarily where the golf cart would have been parked. Yeah, and he explained why they park it where they park it, but it never went anywhere. It didn't go anywhere. And it was also on June 8th, so it's very possible that Somebody else there, like Ball or somebody, got on the golf court and went to see to the kennels or somewhere. They didn't wrap it up. No, but we, but maybe it'll be coming up. That's what we pointed out, because maybe it'll be coming up. And also, we wanted to mention in that clip we just played was something you think really resonated. Yeah, I mean, Creighton brings up this random vigilante who shows up to kill Maggie and Paul. We all know Paul has been couch surfing. We've heard that from multiple people that they happen to know that Paul was going to be there and that there are going to be these guns there that they could use. And I thought that that was successful on Creighton's part. I think I think so. I, I don't think it would be hard to know where Paul is because he was always on Snapchat. Like all my kids, everybody, uh, all the friends and everybody knows who they are. They're not claiming on Alex's part. They're not saying that this was anyone who was involved in this boating accident. It was right. some personal on social media yeah. who was following it and – would that person have been following Paul oh. on Snapchat? I don't know. But I do think that the, the fact that Creighton is bringing up, what is the plausibility of this right. random vigilante? Am I saying that right? Vigilante. Vi- yeah, I'm saying it wrong. Please don't message. <laughs> don't message. The, what we, the amount of uh, emails and comments we get about various ways we speak, too fast, too slow, too choppy, too whatever. No, if you want to get, if you really want to get a thicker skin, start a podcast. You've, and she's come a long way. I've been used to getting beat up from being in the media forever, but it was new. Now you're just like, yeah, I said it wrong. Whatever. That's great. I think it's great. It should be a little more relaxed, and I like it, Seaton. I like it. So, um, yeah, that was uh, the vigilante thing. Even if you leave out the 5-2 thing and all that, just the fact that someone has to pop in in that short window and hope that it's Paul by himself or whatever or and just find guns there because they're saying they were guns from Moselle. It's if I was crazy. on the jury, that would that would be something I would be thinking about. Yes. Uh, and, and speaking of thinking about, how about thinking about the lies, the lies and lies, the, the big lie. This is why we think Alec had to take the stand is to explain away why he told the lie about being at the kennels at eight forty four. So, of course, they were going to go deep into that. Um, and in and, and this clip, we get to see how quickly he started to lie about not being at the kennels. Let's play that. 
When was the last time you were here with them? Or talked to them or anything like that? Um. It was earlier tonight. Uh, I, I, I don't know the exact time, but okay. I left. I was probably gone an hour and a half from my mom's, and I saw them about 45 minutes before that. That was Sergeant Green, correct? That, yeah, that was Sergeant Green. And at that point in time, SLED was not there. No one had gotten GSR from you. Your law partners or Sheriff Hill were not there. That's correct. No one had asked you about your relationships. David Owen was not there. That's correct. But you still told the same lie. And all those reasons that you just gave this jury about the most important part of your testimony was a lie too. Isn't that true, Mr. Murdoch? I, I disagree with that. Nothing further. Nice. Uh, the importance of this is, and I think that the prosecution didn't even remember they had this statement on the body uh, body cam footage, because all along throughout the testimony, Ella kept saying, "Well, why, there's him. Why July?" And he's like, "Well, I, had, I was paranoid about sled. I was paranoid because I was on drugs. I was thinking that they were going to twist everything, etc." Uh, and people were saying, oh, people kept telling me I should get a lawyer and blah, blah, blah. Well, now we find out after they went back and found it, I assume the body cam, no one's there yet. Right out of the gate, right out of the gate. This is the body cam, not sitting in the car. This is the Colleton County officer. He's saying that he wasn't at the kennels. So the lie started before all these things Ellick claimed were the reasons why he lied. That's important. Listen to that. I don't know that he didn't say that he was not at the kennels. He said he hadn't seen him for an hour to an hour and a half. That's a very valid point. Good call, Seton. Right at the very <laughs> beginning, you're right. He doesn't say when. He said when was the last time you saw him? Yeah. Okay. It's okay. Uh, it's up to the jurors, but it's true. It's true. Uh, so anyway, he, he uh, did talk about his paranoia of sled, and people are going to. Many people are having a problem with that because of the fact that he worked with SLED for so long. We bring back in uh, legal analyst John Snyder. Hi, John. Hey. Um, so the, the they're, they're saying, no, wait, but wait a minute. You showed your badge all the time. You had your badge in a thing. You worked with law enforcement. You, were, you had lights put on your car at one point to uh, all this. And yet you say you were paranoid about SLED. And that is the route they were going on this paranoia thing. Right, just like how can you be so tight with them, yet paranoid? Do you think that was a good way to work that strategy? Yeah, I mean, I think I think what the prosecution is clearly wanting to do is jury, who who by the way is the only opinion that matters. True, absolutely. Everything that this guy says is not true, and when he says it, he says it because that's what is the most convenient thing for him to continue to conceal the lifestyle, the poor decisions, the continual, you know, stealing from clients, stealing from his partners, and ultimately the jig being up on this, you know, wildly lavish lifestyle that he led. And Alec kept using the word paranoid over and over again over the last the few days of the testimony. 
Uh, this is from Jason. Email to Matt Harris podcast at gmail.com. Great episode of LX testimony. I want to note one thing about the word paranoid is that anyone familiar with opioid addiction would have resonated with the word paranoid. If Alec did not say the word to find the nature of his paranoia, it would have seemed incredible to anyone who had that experience. I think, I think he's saying that if you've been on the opioids, you do have this paranoia. And it's, so he believes it because he's lived it, where a lot of us would be saying, or a lot of people would be saying, he's just making up this paranoid about sled thing. So maybe it is possible if you're on many opioids that you get paranoid. Let's uh, get a clip here where Creighton and Alec are doing battle over the amount of steps he took in a certain window. And then you would agree with me that from 9.02 to 9.06, your phone finally comes to life and starts showing a lot of steps. I do agree with that. What were you doing? I was getting ready to go to my mom's house. Getting ready to go? I thought you took a shower already. You were just laying down on the couch. What, what all you need to do to get ready to go to your mom's house? Uh, I mean, there wasn't anything to get ready in, in that aspect. It wasn't but anything to get ready. I was, was getting it? ready to go. I was preparing to leave. So doing what? I don't know if I got up, uh, went to the bathroom. I don't know. I can't tell you exactly what I was doing. Well, that's far more steps in a shorter time period than, than any time prior, as you've seen from the testimony in this case. So what, what were you so busy doing? That's... Going to the bathroom? No, I don't. I don't think that I get on a treadmill. Went to the bathroom. No, I didn't get on a treadmill. Jogging place? No, nope, I didn't jog in place. Jacks? No, sir, I did not do jumping jacks. What were you doing, Mr. Murdoch, for those four months? Preparing to leave for my mom's house. What? What does that mean? I mean, you're in the front room on that couch where you say you laid down. The Suburban's just right outside. What all are you doing? I don't know if I got up and went to my room, went to the gun room. Went back in that. Doing what? You've been so clear in your new story about everything. What What were you doing during these four minutes? I, I disagree with your assertion about every detail. I don't recall. I know that I was getting up and I was leaving. I was going to check on my mom. But specifically what I was doing, I don't, I, I don't know. Um, do you have any uh, thoughts on all that? I, I think there is times when you're doing things that are mundane that you don't remember. I really think the fact that Alec didn't have an answer for what he was doing yes. during this time is problematic for him. Also, I don't know. I mean, the snarkiness of Creighton saying jumping jacks and all that. Yeah, those are questions, but I don't know if that might be a problem with the jury of how he seems, I don't know. John, yeah, John, from a yeah. legal thing, how do, you, how do you play it when you're an attorney like that? So, you know, you, you've been presented with this kind of, you, you feel pretty strongly about your evidence and the timeline that your evidence establishes. And so you've got not only just a, a fact witness, but the actual defendant on the stand and you you go from showing a phone that's barely moving to a phone that's moving around suddenly, uh, maybe furtively might be the probably the best word to describe it. And and he's like, well, I was just getting ready. It's like so I think I think Waters questioning there is reasonable to be like, okay, or were you like jogging in place? Were you do, you know get your sweat into the oldies uh, tape out on your VCR? Like what? What's the deal where it shows you're basically barely moving to 
you know, run around like a hamster. But it is a and hard so, call probably as an attorney trying to decide, okay, when do I become a wise ass? When do I act like ridiculous? Right. I mean, you're, you're measuring that. You're measuring that. And I think you want to, you want to, you know, I, I think it's a reasonable question for the jury. You want, you want to use this kind of, uh, argument to the extreme to say, okay, what, what other excuse would there be on your timeline other than the fact you were cleaning up a crime scene? Well, don't uh, you think that the defense should have prepared him for, to answer this question? I, I think they, yeah, I think some of it is they know he's a, a courtroom lawyer and he's you know, not been on any drugs for over a year. So he, he may be thinking much more clearer than he has in the past. And they're like, well, you, you know how to handle yourself in a courtroom. Let's see how you do on a witness stand. All right, this next clip, and we'll let John go. We'll get to more of him at some point. But I want to go to Alec on the stand. Creighton Waters talking to him about this flurry of phone calls that he made as he was leaving Moselle to go to his mom's house. And a question I think that Creighton asked that a lot of people were asking. You made those calls to Maggie in that four-minute period. You had just seen them a few minutes ago when you say you went down there and came right back. Why didn't you just take that quick little left 1,100 yards away and stop by? See why they didn't answer the call. You're obviously wanting to get in touch with them. Why didn't you go down to the kennels that were so close by? There was no reason to. I mean, Maggie. Making multiple missed calls to Maggie, and she's so close. And there's a driveway right there. Why do you not just go down there and say, hey, guys, I'm heading over there? It, it wasn't important to do that. Me, me making those phone calls is simply me letting, I believe I called Maggie and I believe call, I called Paul. But that, that, that's simply me just letting them know that I'm leaving for a minute, I'll be back. The fact that, that they don't answer is not unusual at all. Now, it is odd, it is unusual that they never call me back. Um, and, but, but at that moment, the fact that there's a missed call, when, when I know they're on the property, I mean, that doesn't even register at all. That's perfectly normal to try to call somebody who's on the property and not be able to get them. And, and as far as not going down there, uh, there, there was no sense of urgency. Maggie was with Paul. You know, she should be as safe as she could be. As yeah, she should. That was Creighton at the end, just adding a little, as she should be. The, that question I got multiple times in, in emails and messages is when he's leaving Moselle to go to his mom's house, why didn't he just, you're trying to call her, just buzz by and say, hey, I'm on my way. And he, he's like, well, there's no, I can, we can attest that the signal out there is not great. No. We were standing right outside Moselle one time and one of us had no bars, one of us had one bar. I had no, but I do have T-Mobile. Sorry, T-Mobile, but your service is not the best. <laughs> uh, we want to comment on, uh, while we're talking about 
Maggie and why she was there, that sort of thing, is the dogs, right? You want to talk about the dogs? Yeah, so that, to me, and I did receive a message about this, was honestly a little bit of an aha moment. Alec was questioned about whether the dogs were acting differently as if maybe there was someone around. Like if the dogs mm-hmm. sensed that there was someone else or someone else in the woods, wouldn't they? And he said, no, the dogs were acting ordin- as they would ordinarily because there was no one else around. And that could go either way. That could be saying, well, if he's going to tell the truth about that, because he easily could have said, oh, there was something fishy going on, but he didn't. But the dogs also come into play because he says, in retrospect, I don't think Maggie planned on going to Edisto because she didn't take the dogs. And she always took the dogs when she went to Edisto. Bubba, definitely. Maybe Grady. Uh, And since the dogs were there, he says, I think she was planning the whole time to be home. Yes, that. But to me, the fact that the dogs were acting as they ordinarily would, and they they weren't barking as if someone was there. And if this timeline that has been presented to us that is pretty significant. Because he only has a few minutes from the time he leaves. He last sees the dogs until they're shot. Yes. And you would think to be, if someone was hiding, lurking in the woods. You would, you, the dogs would have been after these people. I mean, these are hunting dogs. Exactly. Uh, we have a clip now. I think uh, one of our last ones here. This is about, oh, the roadside shooting. He does talk about the roadside shooting. It finally came up. And just a little quick, glimpse this is when labor day weekend he says he hired eddie smith to shoot him in the head so buster would get 10 or 11 million dollars i tried to get a man to help me kill myself because issues were at my doorstep every time or i'm sorry for the first time in your life of privilege and prominence and wealth. When you were facing accountability, each time suddenly you became a victim and everyone ran to your aid. Isn't that true? I mean, I disagree with that, but. I mean, what you're shame for you is an extraordinary provocation, isn't that true, Mr. Murdoch? Let me just finish this. You you seem to be implying two dates, June the seventh and September, and talking about accountability issues. And I mean, those to me, those two things are totally different. There were no accountability issues on my doorstep on June the seventh. That's what you say. And in September, not what other people say. I was trying to, well, no, I mean, been a lot of people, well, on, in, in September, that wasn't designed to gain me sympathy. That was designed for me not to be here because I didn't want my son to have to deal with the wake of the things that I had done. But that's not the story you told. The story that came out of your mouth right away was the story of you getting attacked by some unknown assailant while you were trying to change a tire and run flats. Well, that's, that's the story that you told. That is the story I told, but that's because 
The man who shot me did not shoot me that day as I intended. And I had, a, I had to have a story as to how I got shot, so I lied. So you lied. And you're saying that people in your family... Hmm. Okay. The, they, they didn't go deep into the roadside thing as much, but they're trying to set up this idea that whenever he's in trouble, he does something to get sympathy. You know, I have thought about this roadside shooting for a very long time, and the thing that sticks out to me the most is why would Cousin Eddie decide to just shoot him just out of the goodness of his heart, you're going to shoot someone in the head. Yeah. He, they, they, there was no money exchanged, or why? The, the whole roadside shooting does not make sense to me. And it also could be twisted into, not necessarily twisted, it could be taken as, I'm sure what the defense might say is, look, he loved his family so much, he'd rather kill himself. So why would he kill those two when he could have just killed himself and he gotten out of it? No, I... I, I see that, but why would Eddie say why yes? Why would Eddie say yes? It does it makes zero sense to Unless, me. Unless, what if Alex says, hey, either you shoot me and kill me, or I'm going to tell people that you are running drugs for me. Okay, maybe. I don't know. We're just throwing <laughs> something out there. Uh, the rest of the testimony was basically uh, trying to get him... To just lie after lie and talk him into those sort of things. They tied up. We won't necessarily play the clip, but in 911, remember there's this question about could he have checked both their vitals in 20 seconds? Yeah. So he set that straight by saying he got out of the car. I think he checked Paul, went back to the car and got the phone. So he didn't do both in 20 seconds. And he's saying that he's doing this while he's on the phone with them. Yes, as he's on the phone at the same yes. time. Right, exactly right, exactly right. Now let's hit a quick uh, Jim Griffin clip. Uh, when they got to get back for a redirect. Well, you've, you've lied to your family over many years, have you not? I lied to my family about my addiction. And you hid from them you were stealing client money, did you not? Oh, I never. They, they didn't know anything about that. And you've, you've lied to your law partners about financial dealings and perhaps your addiction? Yes. And you've lied to law enforcement about um, not going down to the kennels after dinner, but eating dinner and taking a nap. Did you not? I did. Alec, did you murder Maggie? I would never hurt Maggie. Did you murder Paul? I would never hurt Paul. If I was under the pressure that they're talking about here, I can promise you I would hurt myself before I would hurt one of them. Without a doubt. Thank you. That's all the questions I have. Orders. All right, so other thoughts as we start to wrap here on what you saw down there, what you heard. I mean, there's so much that we gave you quite a load right there. But I know there's uh, other things that uh, we have questions about. One was, I'll get to this, this question, because 
she sent this email to me before they actually asked the question about the family annihilator. Creighton Waters point blank asked him that he said, are you a family annihilator? Yeah, we've received that question. I've seen that a lot on social media. I, I was, I was, I had not really thought about it. I think Creighton might be reading social media. I, I thought the same thing is like, is he, is he, is he following all the same things I am? Right, because uh, it just seems strange to just throw it out. He didn't follow it up with anything. He just uh, tossed it out there. So we had that from a few people. So thank you for your uh, continued work and sending us uh, questions and information. You have uh, some people you'd like to say hello to? And- oh, yeah. So it was so cool. My son's kindergarten teacher was there. Oh, really? On- yes, Miss Sutterhook. And she said, you're probably not going to recognize me. I was like... Yes, Miss Sutterhook, you were the best kindergarten teacher ever. And also talked to Angie, Lee, Honey, Beck, and a few other people. I probably, I tried to write down names, but, yes, you know. But again, I was really taken aback that Miss Sutterhook was That's there. Crazy. Yeah, yeah. And I ran into uh, Jenny and Carson. Uh, and I'll put that picture up on Facebook page. You were big fans of the uh, podcast. So thank you, everybody. Yeah, I do want to read an email that, or a message I got from, again, we're getting messages from lots of different sides, but I thought this was a really good one. So this one said, so I've been team Alex since day one. I tailgated at SC Games with him and his family and honestly thought there was no way he could do this to Maggie and Paul. But as I was listening to testimony, it occurred to me if he didn't do it, why would he be withholding information about the kennels? And it, it gives a little bit more rationale, but I thought this was an interesting one to read because this is a person who knows him. With Swade. And with Swade. But that lie is going to be huge. It is going to be huge. Uh, and, and remember, like, when we, the way we do the podcast in, in this case is, we are not telling you he's guilty or innocent. We are telling you, we're trying to tell you what the jury, only what the jury's hearing and how we think that may be playing, right? We're, we're, and we're like, oh, that was a good point for the side, good point for that side. It doesn't have anything to say about how we feel about Alec Murdoch. I want to point that out. No, and we're no experts. No experts, but maybe that's why we can relate to as a, a jury member. Although we're so deep into it, maybe we can't. No, actually, we even said, I've received other messages saying that you're not giving the jury enough credit because you're confused. And maybe I agree. Maybe the jury's not as confused as I am. <laughs> well, we get confused. Trust me, we get confused. Uh, always a pleasure that you join us. We're always grateful for that. And uh, Matt Harris Podcast at gmail.com, Murdoch Podcast on Facebook. Oh, and I do one more thing. Uh, what four more defense uh, experts, right? Yeah, four more defense experts. They anticipated each one of those experts would be about an hour, and I'm, I was thinking that meant for them and Cross. I don't know for sure. And then there will be a few uh, rebuttal experts. They said witnesses. I don't know. I'm thinking those are going to be experts okay. brought on by the prosecution, mm-hmm. and then closing arguments. So I'm thinking closing arguments Wednesday or Thursday. There you go. Uh, we'll uh, talk soon, friend. Every day, 
we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Ohio is a land of mystery, from missing shipwrecks and lost treasure beneath her surface to strange phenomenon slicing through her skies, from myths that have evolved around historic events and people to the unsolved murders and disappearances that keep her communities wondering what happened. Find Ohio Mysteries on your favorite podcast app, and let's explore the inexplicable. OhioMysteries.com.